Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Our focus this morning will be on Isaiah chapter 53, but I ask that you turn to Isaiah 52 as we will begin our reading at chapter 52, verse 13, and read all the way through chapter 53. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is the word of Almighty God, so I ask that out of respect and reverence for him, you stand at the reading of his holy word. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, And he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, all of Scripture is is holy. This is a, a unique book. It is your book. It is your word. Yet even within this book, Father, we we feel that there are certain passages that speak so directly and so clearly to us about your Son. And we know that we are embarking on the the exposition of one such passage. We pray that you would be with us now, that the passage would be clear, and that uh, we would not leave here the same as we came that we would be changed and transformed by your word. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Scholars have identified uh, four sections of Isaiah that they call the servant songs of, of the book of Isaiah. And the passage that we just read is the fourth and, and final servant song. They are sections of scripture that speak of the servants of Yahweh. Uh, we see in this particular uh, psalm, or in this particular servant song, the fourth one, that it begins speaking about the exaltation of the servant of the Lord. If you recall in 52.13, it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So the first thing we see that the servant of the Lord is, is, is glorified. He is exalted. He, is, he, he prospers. But yet no sooner does it speak of the prosperity of the servant of the Lord as it speaks of his sufferings in verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. That just as, as the nations in ancient times after Israel had been taken into exile into Babylon in 586, when the, when the nations visited Jerusalem and saw it in, in shambles, saw it burnt to the ground, and, and saw the destruction that Babylon had brought upon the nation, and they gasped at, at such horror. God tells his servant, just as people gasped in horror at the nation and the destruction that was brought upon them, so too will they gasp at horror upon you as they look at, at the deformity of your face after you have been beaten to a bloody pulp, such that you will be unrecognizable and that, that you won't even appear to be human. So we, we see at the, at the very outset of this passage these two great themes of glory and suffering, the suffering of the servant and the glory of the servant, the servant of the Lord. And we will focus our attention today on chapter 53 as we as we. Uh, uncover these two great themes of the suffering of the Lord and, and his subsequent glory, because really 53 is an expansion of, of those two themes. But before we dig into the passage, it, it might be helpful to, to ask, who is this servant? Who is the servant of the Lord that is being spoken of in, the, in these servant songs in Isaiah? It's a, it's a valid question. In fact, it's one that the prophets themselves asked. Uh, there's a, a very interesting passage in the book of 1 Peter where Peter, describing the prophets, says, listen, it says, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. So if you followed that, what he was saying is that the prophets themselves searched their writings to try to figure out who is the servant, who is the Christ, who is, who is this one that the Spirit that is within me speaking about. They no doubt searched their own writings, and they searched the writings of their fellow prophets. It was a question that the Ethiopian eunuch asked. If you recall that, uh, that episode in Scripture recorded in Acts chapter 8, that the Ethiopian eunuch, the man from Ethiopia who was a believer in the true God, had come up to Jerusalem to worship, and he was a servant of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He's on his way back down to Ethiopia. An angel of the Lord comes to, to Philip and tells him to go along the road that goes down to Gaza. And he comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch as he is in his chariot and he's reading. And in, in ancient times, many, often people would read out loud. And he comes upon this Ethiopian eunuch and it just so happens that he's reading this very passage. And do you remember what Philip said to him? He said, do you, do you understand what you were reading? 
He says, how am I supposed to understand unless someone interprets it for me? And then the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, he said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Who is the prophet speaking about? Who is Isaiah uh, prophesying about in this passage? Some say it's Isaiah himself. Some say it's Jeremiah or one of the other suffering prophets. There is a tradition within the rabbinical uh, uh, interpretations in exegesis that this is speaking about the Christ who is to come. Or some, even a Jewish exegetes, say, no, 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 this is about the nation of Israel and all of its suffering. That this is, this is speaking about the children of Israel and, and the Jews. This is, this is about a, a, a corporate people spoken of as an individual. You know, we ought not to be so quick to disregard that interpretation because multiple times in the book of Isaiah, Israel is called the servant of the Lord. It says, Israel is my servant, multiple times. But it is pretty clear from this passage and from other sections within Isaiah that there is an individual servant. If you look at verse 8, it says at the second half, we're in chapter 53 now, 53, 8, the second half, it says, As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of, li of the living, listen, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So clearly there's a distinction between the person who's suffering here and the people for whom he is suffering. And if you look at verse 9, it speaks of uh, this, this one who suffers is one who had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And that certainly cannot be spoken of the nation of Israel prior to going into exile in Babylon. They went into exile because there was deceit in their mouth, because they were filled with violence, filled with idolatry, and filled with every other type of sin that caused them to be removed from the, the land. So no, this is speaking not about a corporate people, but about an individual who suffers on behalf of the people, who suffers on behalf of, 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 his, of, his, of the people that he, he died for. And we need to look no further than the New Testament to know that this is speaking of none other but Jesus of Nazareth. Many times in the New Testament, this passage is quoted in reference to Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Isaiah 53.1 is quoted in the book of John and Romans. Isaiah 54.4 in Matthew and 1 Peter. 53.6, 1 Peter. 53.12, Mark and Luke. In fact, in Luke, Jesus himself applies this passage to himself when he says that the scripture must be fulfilled that says, I was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus saw this passage as about him. The prophets saw this passage about him. The apostles saw this passage about him. We've already seen that Peter, or excuse me, Philip, uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch, saw this passage about, is being about Jesus. Because it says that from that passage, this very passage, he, he told the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus and about the Christ. And then the eunuch was baptized. So this is a passage about Jesus. And it shows us his, his sufferings. It shows us his glory. And it's a, it's a remarkable passage because it was written some 700 years before Jesus even walked this earth. It was written some 700 years before he suffered the things that are related in it. But yet it tells us in precise detail the things that, that the servant of the Lord, Jesus, uh, the Christ, would suffer. And that's significant in the book of Isaiah. If you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know that many times in the book of Isaiah, God, Yahweh, proves his, his, his deity, proves that he is the only true God by telling the future. He mocks the idols of the nations, telling them, uh, tell me if you can what will come to pass in the future. 
You can't even tell me what happened in the past, let alone the future. And yet here God unfolds for us in, in marvelous detail the sufferings and glories of Christ hundreds of years before they come to pass. I've mentioned the great themes of, of, of the passage or the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. We, we see that in, in 1 Peter when he was speaking about the, the inquiry of the prophets into their own writings. It speaks of the spirit of Christ within them predicting as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus, if you remember, he unfolded the scriptures to, uh, to, to the two disciples on the road and listen to what he said. He said, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? So again, we see the theme of suffering and glory. And that is the, the, the main point I want us to draw out of this passage as we look at it. That Jesus Christ suffered for our sins and entered into glory. That Jesus Christ suffered for our sins and entered into glory. We're going to focus on the, the suffering today. The, the passage itself uh, breaks into uh, two sections. One, the sufferings of Christ is in verses 1 through 9, and then the glories in verses 10 through 12. We are going to f focus on the sufferings today, Lord willing. Next week, we'll look at the, glo uh, at the, at the glories to follow. Uh, the, the sufferings themselves, uh, you can find in your bulletin. There's a three-part outline for us this morning. The first section, verses 1 through 3, speaks of the rejection of the servant. The second section, verses 4 through 6, speaks of the burden of the servant. And then the final section we'll look at this morning, verses 7 through 9, speaks of the oppression of the servant. So let's look now at the sufferings of this servant of the Lord together as we consider the fact that Jesus was rejected. Look at verse 53.1. It says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The first way we see the rejection of, of Jesus in that he was not believed. It, John tells us that Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. John tells us in chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, But though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing in him. Listen, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's never been a preacher like Jesus of Nazareth. There's never been one who spoke so boldly concerning the kingdom of God. There's never been one who was so eloquent. There's never been one who had done such marvelous miracles and signs and wonders. And yet for all that he did and all that he spoke, the people did not believe upon him. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in scripture often refers to the power of God and, and so often specifically to the power of God to save. You remember it says, my arm is not too short that it cannot save. Indeed, even if you look right over at the page in, in chapter 52, 10, it says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all of the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So we see that the arm of the Lord is a, it's a symbol of strength and power. Think of in the Exodus how many times it said that he delivered them with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. That it's the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, that brings about salvation. And certainly the gospel is the power of God to salvation. But the Jews of Christ's time, they missed it. Because they were looking for something else. They weren't looking for the, 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 the humble man from Galilee. They were looking for a, a mighty deliverer, a mighty conqueror, a king. 
Look at verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. They were looking for a mighty cedar, but yet Jesus came as a sucker branch, as a, as a tender shoot, as a, as a mere root out of parched ground, out of dry ground where you wouldn't typically expect a root to, to come up. Plants need water. The unexpected nature of, of Christ's origin and beginnings. And how often his, his origin became a stumbling block to the people of his day. It's interesting as you read through the Gospels, how many times it comes up where Jesus is from. Listen to Mark 6. It says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, and, um, and brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Listen, it says, and they took offense at him. Said, this is Jesus. We know this guy. How can, how can he be the deliverer? How can he be the Christ? John 6, it says, they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They were taking offense at his, at his origin, at his roots. And indeed, besides that, they, they not only rejected him because of their expectations of what his origin might be, but they also rejected him because they had a certain expectation of how he should look. Look with me again in 53, 2, the second half. It says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Greg mentioned this a few weeks ago, the, the, the stark contrast between Jesus, the last king of Israel, and Saul, the son of Kish, the first king of Israel. That Saul was head and shoulders taller than any man in the, in the whole country. And it says that there was no one more handsome than Saul. Can you imagine that being said of you, that you were the most attractive person in the entire United States of America? I know that People Magazine comes out with their most beautiful person. I don't always agree with the person they select. Um, I'm sure that there is some unknown person somewhere that's more attractive than the celebrity that they chose. But God himself said that there was no one more handsome than Saul. Saul was the most good-looking person in the entire country. It's remarkable. What if you were God and, and you had to come down and take upon flesh? How would you form your flesh in the womb of, of the Virgin Mary? Would you be short and bald? Or would you be tall and majestic? Would you have a, a flowing head of hair like Absalom who cut his hair once a year and they would weigh it to see how, 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 how glorious it was? What would you look like? Would you be a little taller? Would you be a little skinnier? Would you have a, a, better, a better face, a more attractive face? It's interesting, when Jesus came, he came with, with no outward majesty, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. And we begin to see something of his heart here, don't we? The humility of Christ, his, his, his willingness to associate with the commoner, with the common man. But yet this became a stumbling block to the Jews because they had certain expectations about what he should look like, how he should act. And indeed, it tells us in verse 3 that he was despised and forsaken of men. Some see this as a reference of him being forsaken of men of rank. It, it literally says that he is lacking of men, that Jesus was, was lacking of, of, of men, that he didn't have a large following. Yes, he had many crowds who would come, but we learn in John chapter 6 that many of the crowds were simply there for the bread or there for, for the miracles, that even in the book of Acts, um, I think Josh mentioned this last week, there was 120 souls that, that incorporated the church. Uh, in, in, before Pentecost, and then there were many added to him. That he was lacking of men of rank. We see that in the book of John when the, the, 
the guards went out to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and the, the Pharisees said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, never has a man spoken like this man. And then they said, none of the rulers of, of the Pharisees uh, has believed on him, have they? But this crowd, these commoners that do not know the law, they are accursed. So even they could say in their time, look, none of the rulers, none of the, the leaders have believed on Jesus, that he, did, that he lacked of men of rank. And, and as I've already mentioned in John chapter 6, many forsook him and stopped following after him after his hard saying. And even in his darkest hour, his disciples left him alone. And I had to ask myself when going through this, is he lacking of me? Does he really have me? Does he really have my heart? Is he lacking of you? Does the Lord have you this day? Or are you like the seed that has fallen on the rocky ground, which receives the word for a time with gladness? But when the sun comes up, when the persecution and the hardness comes upon you, you forsake him and you no longer walk with him. It says that he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was like one from whom men hide their face. And he was despised and we did not esteem him. That word for, for esteem means that we, we, we thought of him as a being of no value, of no worth. We've spoken a lot from this pulpit about the, the weightiness, the glory of God. Sometimes this word is used as, if, as the exact opposite of that. That when something is weighty and heavy, it, it is of a substance. It's a picture of scales. Picture the scales in your mind. God's glory is weighty. Everything else should be light and, and, and air in our minds. That in our hearts, when, when, when God is placed on one side and everything else is placed on the other, the scales ought to tip on the side of God and everything else might, should be uh, counted as mere air and breath and nothingness. And yet it says that that's how men esteemed Christ, as nothing, as worthless, of no value. Remember it says that he is the stone which the builders rejected. Have you ever thought about that, that metaphor, that analogy? It's the analogy of, of someone building a building, and they're, they're looking for the stones for the building, and, and someone hands him one, and he looks at it, says, nah, that one's no good, and chucks it to the side. It's worthless to me. It's nothing. It's of no value. That's how people treated Christ. So we see the first way that Jesus suffered was in that he was rejected. The first way that the servant of the Lord suffered was rejection of men. And recall that the primary reason, or one of the primary reasons why they, they rejected him is because they had certain expectations about him, certain expectations of how he should look and what he should do. They were looking for deliverance from Rome. They were looking for deliverance from an earthly ruler. They didn't realize that Jesus had come to deliver them from a far greater foe, not from Caesar, but from Satan, not from the oppression of an, an earthly kingdom, but from the, the bondage of sin. And it's easy for us to, to look down upon the, the Jews of, of the first century, isn't it? And say, how foolish. How foolish of them to have such expectations. How worldly they are to want deliverance from Rome and to not realize that Jesus was doing something far greater. But how many of us have expectations of what the salvation of the Lord should look like? How many of us have certain expectations of what his work in our lives should look like? Here he is conforming us to his image weaning us from the world. And yet when he takes a spouse, when he takes a child, when he takes our health, when he takes a job, what do we do? We say, this isn't the salvation I signed up for. 
I thought it would be ease of days. I thought when I came to Christ, everything would be, would be well with me, that everything would be good. We too, brothers and sisters, have expectations about the work of Christ in our life and what his salvation should look like. Let us beware, lest we fall into the same trap of rejecting Christ for not accepting him as he is. Okay, first point done, that Jesus, the servant of the Lord, was rejected. Let's turn now to the second point as we look at the burden of the servant of the Lord in verses 4 through 6. Look first, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Actually, it says, uh, it, it, literally, surely our sicknesses he bore, and our pains he carried. What does that mean, that he carried our sickness? that mean that when Jesus walked this earth, that he constantly had a cold, that he suffered from the flu, that his body was riddled with cancerous tumors? How are we supposed to understand Jesus bearing our sickness? What, what does this mean? Well, it's helpful for us if we look within the book of Isaiah. If you recall in chapter 1, in the book of Isaiah, God is speaking to the, to the nation, and he's speaking about the chastisement and the punishment that he has brought upon them from the nation of Assyria. That Assyria had come down and had conquered many of their cities. And he likened Jerusalem to being a hut in a cucumber field. That, that Jerusalem was all that was left. If you looked around the whole nation, it was, it was waste and damage and destruction and conquest and, and bondage. And God tells them, he, he gives this analogy of, of someone being beaten up. Listen what he says. He says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. You hear that? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Do you see what he's saying? God is telling his people, I have, I have been whooping you. There's nowhere else for me to hit you. Your whole head is beat up. Your whole body is beat up. There's nowhere sound left on you for me to, to punish you. Will you continue in your rebellion? Will you not turn back after all that I have done to try to turn you back in my chastening hand? So often we are the same way. The Lord will chasten us and chasten us and chasten us, and we will not turn back. But you see the analogy, don't you? That, that the, the analogy of someone being beaten from head to toe is referred to as one who is sick, one who is lacking health, one who is lacking physical soundness in his body because he has been beaten to a pulp. And that is certainly the picture that we ought to gather from verse 4 when it says that our sicknesses or our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. That Jesus bore the punishment that we deserve. That Jesus bore the, the chastisement, the, the, the punishment that was due to us for our sins in his own person. But it says that we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Here Jesus is bearing the sins of his people. And how was it interpreted? They say, surely this man must be accursed of God. Surely this man is smitten of God, afflicted. He must be suffering for some evil that he has done. And half of that is true, isn't it? Jesus was cursed. Jesus was smitten of God. Jesus was afflicted. But he was not suffering for any evil that he had done. No, he was suffering for the sins of his people. As we see in verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 
It tells us in verse 6 that all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Listen, there is not a single person under the sound of my voice who has not sinned against God. It tells us in this passage that every single one of us has strayed to his own way. There has been a time in every single one of our lives where we have taken our own path, where we have rejected the way of the Lord. And it tells us that God has taken the iniquity of us all and has placed it upon Christ. Children, listen. It's important for you to understand what happened at the cross. We speak of the cross. What happened? Why did Jesus die? It's not that he died for his own sins, but he died for the sins of his people. That God did something remarkable on the tree. That he took the sins of his people and he he transferred them to Jesus. That he allowed Jesus to die instead of his people. Because all of us deserve to die because of our sins. But Jesus, as a substitute, died on our behalf. That That is the glory of the cross. And what we ought not to overlook, too, the burden of it. It says that he himself bore our griefs and our sorrows he carried. The word for, for bearing is the word to lift, to lift up and carry. Do you remember the words of, of John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Literally, behold the Lamb of God who lifts the sin of the world. He carries the sin of the world. The word for, for carried is one of, of grievous and toilsome burden. It's use of Solomon and the forced labor that he, he placed upon the people. That heavy, grievous load that he placed upon their backs. That Jesus took that load upon himself. All the weight of sin upon this one man. It's been said that, that all of, of the divine justice and anger focused as a, as a, as a laser beam upon Jesus upon the cross. That all the concentrated wrath and justice of God focused upon this one man. Can you imagine the weight of that? The weight of Jesus, the Holy One, who had never sinned, who had never experienced any displeasure of God, now experiencing the the humiliation of, of crucifixion, and now experiencing the great dread and wrath of Almighty God. Oh, the burden of it. The burden of sin is, is one that is picked up in that classic work in, uh, by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. I trust that many of you are familiar with this work. If you recall that Christian leaves the city of destruction and he, he leaves with a load on his back, doesn't he? He has the burden of sin on his shoulders. I think I have a copy of the book in my library and it shows Christian hunched over with this enormous burden on his back as he's leaving the city of destruction. And it's not until he comes to the cross that the burden is relieved. That it's at the cross that we lay down our burden of sin. And look, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if, I'm guessing that some of you perhaps have never even felt the burden of sin. But God saves in, in many different ways. He, he saves in, in, sometimes he just simply draws people by his love and his mercy. I think that's the testimony of Jonathan Edwards. But for many of us, we, we come to this place where we feel the burden of sin. I'm a software salesman by profession. Many of you know that. And one of the first things in a sales cycle that happens is we have what's called a discovery call, a disco call. And part of my job during that call is to find out, is this person experiencing any sort of pain that my software can solve? Is there a need that my software helps them with? 
Because if not, they're probably not going to buy. If they don't see the need for the software, they're probably not going to buy the software. And so often the same is true in the heart of man, that until we see the need of Christ, we're not going to come to him. Jesus said that, the, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the way that God so often works in the heart and the soul of, of a man or a woman is, is first we experience the burden of sin, the, the toilsome load of sin. We become acutely aware that we are sinners in God's sight. I recently met with someone not from this congregation over breakfast and was speaking to him about the gospel and it became very clear right at the outset that this man had zero sense of his sin. So what did I do? Did I speak to him about the forgiveness of sin? Did I speak to him about the, the, the free gift of, of grace in Jesus Christ? I got there eventually. But the first thing I did is I took him to the law. I wanted him to feel the burden. I wanted him to feel the weight of sin. Some of you are feeling that weight today. Perhaps you have never let it down. Perhaps you have never come to the point in your life where you realize that Jesus has already lifted that burden for you. Or some of us have let down that burden long ago. But as so often happens in the course of the Christian life, we pick it up again, don't we? We pick it up and we begin to, to live as if we have this enormous load on our shoulders to bear ourselves. Listen, in reality, you can't pick the burden back up. If you're in Christ, he's already borne it for you. He's already paid for your sins upon the tree. He's paid for every sin you'll ever commit. But practically speaking, we live there, don't we? Where are you today? Are you living with the burden of sin on your back once again? Will you hear this passage once again that Jesus bore your sins? He has already lifted the grievous load. He has already paid the price for you. Do not live as if he hasn't. Okay, so the second point is that the servant of the Lord suffered by bearing this grievous burden of sin. Which leads us now to the third and final point in verses 7 through 9 when we look at the oppression of the servant. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. That humanly speaking, Jesus was oppressed. That he experienced injustice. Last week, Josh in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 spoke about the, the, the fact that, that the Jews had crucified the Messiah with wicked hands, having done what God had predetermined to happen. This is that great doctrine in Scripture that is called concurrence, where God in his, in his infinite wisdom can take the wickedness and the evil of man and bring it about for his own purposes, for his own good. Yes, God was at work in the cross of Christ. Yes, God had ordained it. Yes, he had predetermined it to happen and had told us that it would happen thousands of years or hundreds of years before it happened. But it doesn't alleviate the fact of the wickedness of how it happened. That Jesus was oppressed in his suffering, that he experienced extreme injustice. That he was arrested at night under the cover of darkness so that no one would see that he experienced some kangaroo trial at the house of the high priest, that they didn't even have charges against him before, before already determining the, the punishment that he should deserve, that they had already determined to put him to death, that they sought false witnesses, and even the false witnesses couldn't agree. And then when they finally drew out of Christ his own testimony, which was true and they called blasphemy, then they took him to Pilate, Pilate the governor, who should have upheld justice in the land, who should not have allowed an innocent man to be murdered. 
Pilate, who himself testified, I see no evil in this man, trying to wash his hands of the guilt of it. The Roman soldiers who mocked him, Herod, who mocked him and beat him. All the injustice that Jesus experienced at the hands of men. But yet it says that like a lamb that is led to slaughter, he didn't open his mouth. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. You notice the continuation of the analogy of sheep. We like sheep go astray, but Jesus, like a sheep, was obedient. He went to the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. And what we ought to understand and see from this is that he was willing to suffer, that he was willing to suffer for you. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I could call on 12 legions of angels this very moment to be delivered. No, Jesus laid down his life. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. That Jesus freely gave his life for you. That he was willing to suffer the oppression of man. You should notice in verse 8 that it says that he was cut off out of the land of the living. It's, no, it's important that we understand that. It's not just that Jesus suffered physically in his body, but that he actually died. We speak so often about the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ, and it's important that we do. We sang about the blood of Christ already today. But would it have been enough for Jesus to simply bleed? What about that first punch to the face when his nose began to bleed or that first cut above his eye? Is that enough? Is that sufficient for the blood of Christ? No, we must think biblically. We must think in terms that God has given us. Because in Leviticus chapter 17, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The significance of the blood is that it is the life that Jesus died. It was necessary for Jesus not simply to bleed, but for him to give up his life, because the wages of sin is death. That each of us deserve death. And in order for Jesus to be our substitute, in order for him to pay the penalty that is due to us for our sins, he had to be cut off out of the land of the living. In verse 9, it says that his grave was assigned with wicked men. It says, yet his de- his, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That Jesus received a proper burial. Here we begin to see the first glimpses of his glorification. Oftentimes, criminals were, were thrown into the Valley of Hinnom, thrown into Gehenna. They were given over for the dogs to eat their flesh or for the birds of the air to feast upon them. But God, recognizing that Jesus was innocent, God, recognizing uh, his promise to Jesus that, that he, his flesh would see no corruption, saw to it that he would receive a proper burial. As we read in the Gospels, that he was placed in the grave of a rich man, the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. So we've seen here, family of God, the sufferings of Christ, haven't we? First, his rejection, the rejection of the servant, and the expectations that they had of him. Then, in the burden that he bore in suffering for our sins upon the cross. And then, in the cruel oppression and injustice that he suffered in his trial and in his death. As we close, I want to just focus one more time on verse 1, where it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Have you believed this message? Has the arm of the Lord been revealed to you this day? 
Do you believe that Jesus bore the punishment of your sins upon the cross? Have you come to the place where you trust him and him alone for your salvation? No longer seeking to bear that heavy load yourself, but letting it go, trusting that Jesus has taken it for you. Listen, remember that the people of Jesus' day stumbled because they had certain expectations of him. Don't stumble today. Will you come to Jesus? Will you receive him as he is? Will you receive the salvation that he promises as he see fit to give it? Will you see the power of God to save through this man? Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a passage, what a text, what truths you have revealed to us. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the servant of the Lord. We see in all of this the plan of the triune God, that God had ordained this before the foundation of the world, that he had predetermined, predetermined this to happen, and that, Lord Jesus, you took upon yourself the, the task of humbling yourself, of becoming a man, of having lowly origins, a lowly beginning, being rejected by men, suffering under Pontius Pilate upon the cross, suffering the burden and weight of our sin as you experienced the wrath of the Father, as you, as you stood in our stead, as you took the punishment that we deserved. And Lord, you were willing to do all of this. And yet we know that all of this redemption accomplished will be nothing to us unless it's revealed to us by your Spirit, unless it is applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. So we pray and ask this day that you would apply to us the truths of this text, that there would not be any here that leaves here not believing this message, that there would be none that leaves here who has not had the arm of the Lord revealed to them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.